Hello, everyone, and welcome to the America in Focus podcast powered by the Center Square. America in Focus is a production of America's Talking Network. I'm Dan McCaleb, executive editor of the Center Square Newswire service. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. Joining me today for a second consecutive week is Brett Rowland, investigative reporter at the Center Square. Casey Harper, the Center Square's bureau chief, took the week off to spend some time with his wife and their new boy, baby boy. Brett, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well. You don't sound so great, Brett. Sounds like you have a bad, I don't know, head cold or something. Yeah, I've got a cold, but I'm feeling better than I have been for the last couple of days. So, um in comparison to how I felt on Tuesday, this is way better. Well, way to be a trooper filling in for uh, Casey Harper again this week. We are recording this on Friday, February 3rd. Brett, with Re- Republicans now holding a slight majority in the U.S. House, uh, they've launched a couple of different investigations. One that you've been follow- fo- uh, following, uh, they're holding hearings on the tens of billions of dollars in fraud associated with all of the COVID-19 relief funds. Congress approved and federal agencies have doled out since the start of the pandemic in March 2020. Tell us what you've learned. Well, um, the the panel and the and the House committee that's looking into this is is very partisan. There's a lot of arguing back and forth. Democrats are trying to blame the Trump administration. Republicans are blaming Democrats. So but once you get past all that, it starts to get really interesting. Um, One of the things that came out of um, uh, the hearing this week was that essentially uh, they don't really know how much money was lost to fraud and waste in these programs yet. And that number might not be known for years. Um, in fact, you know, there's still uh, hundreds of pending fraud cases. There's new cases every week that are popping up from unemployment insurance. So the extent of this fraud is really not going to be known for some time. Now, they tried to throw around some estimates um, like $570 billion, but um, the experts are saying, really, it's just too early to know. Um, th- th- basically said that, you know, it's impossible at this point to estimate the full extent of the fraud right now. You, you just threw that. One, you just threw that one number out there. Five, and it's a complete guess. It's an estimate. So let's be clear about that. Five hundred and seventy billion dollars. Yeah. So that is um, one of the numbers that's out there. So um, specifically, the uh, Comptroller General of the United States was asked about this by Paul Gosser, a Republican from Arizona. He asked. He said, "You know, there's been some estimates. Five hundred sixty billion. Um, is that accurate? And he basically said, um, there's thousands of people who have pled guilty. There are hundreds of people who are still have pending charges. It's not, we, we're not going to know this is going to go on for a while. Um, he said there's, there's indications of widespread fraud, but just how much it's possible to know. So he couldn't even put a figure on it. Now people really wanted to get a number out of this hearing, but it didn't come out. Um, th- there, there is no solid number of to how, exactly how much um, fraud there was. Now it's important to remember that even if it, you know, if, to, if even if it's far above 560 billion, that there was $4.1 trillion in federal aid or sorry, $4.6 trillion in pandemic aid that went out the door. So you would expect, given that amount of money, that there'd be some amount of loss, but we don't know exactly the extent of that loss or waste or fraud or abuse right now. 
I'm no math genius, but using those two numbers, again, estimates, that would be almost like one in five dollars that were paid out during um, the pandemic uh, went to fraudsters. So that could be. And I think that as better numbers come in and there's more uh, sort of tallying up, um, that those will become better known. One of the issues that was brought up by all three of the um, people who all three of the experts that testified at this hearing this week was that um, there was a lot of safeguards that just weren't ever put in place. Safeguards that uh, lessons that we should have learned from uh, the Great Recession, uh, lessons we should have learned from uh, just years and years of government fraud. I mean, one of the things that that came out um, was that the federal government's not very good at making accurately paying the right people um, the right amount of money. Um, and that's been a long going problem. And uh, organizations or agencies like the, the Government Accountability Office have for years urged um, federal agencies to put in place a lot of these safeguards. And a lot of like fraud abuse framework and protocols that just haven't been done. And um, this fraud is evidence that that work wasn't done. The federal government wasn't prepared for this, but they should have been. Let me just pull out one of the numbers um, from your story. The, the, this committee that's investigating this widespread fraud um, identified more than 69,000 questionable Social Security numbers used to obtain $5.4 billion uh, from the Small Business Administration's COVID-19 Economic uh, Injury Disaster Loan Program and Paycheck Protection Program. Aren't Social Security numbers, isn't there a way to to identify whether they're legitimate Social Security numbers? Yes, there should be. Um, I, you and I make, uh, every day we make transactions online. Um, we file our taxes online. There are programs in place to verify identity over the federal government. This hasn't really been their strong suit. Um, and now some of this, they, they said that could have been, um, just like on those social security numbers, some of those social security numbers, it's not that they were like, didn't match the name. Some of them had never been issued before, Dan. So it was like, you know, it should have been a clear indication that there was fraud. Um, so it's a combination of what, yes, there was some sophisticated fraud and there were some people that were out, um, you know, to scam the system. And, and but there was also a lot of just things that weren't in place. Um, for example, a lot of um, these loans and grants and money that went out the door was based on self-certification of the businesses or the um, employer saying, oh, I have 10 employees and we did $4.5 million in business. And they said, oh, click the box if you self-certify. But I mean, you and I know that it's gotta, there's got to be a higher threshold for, for when you're sending out that much money that quickly, you've got to be a little bit more careful about what you're doing with it. Um, I think American taxpayers expect that kind of consistency. And the, the, one of the other things that came out in testimony is that the, that federal agencies didn't even use the U.S. Department of Treasury's do not pay list. They have this list of people who have questionable dealings with the government or are in arrears or th there's many ways to make it out of this do not pay list. But no one was using this as a cross-referencing tool. And had they, they could have saved billions of dollars from even going out the door in the first place. And as you referenced uh, a few minutes ago, um, uh, you're working on a story today, uh, pushing this story forward, that there are several government watchdog groups that even before the pandemic, years before the pandemic began in 2020, um, strongly urged the federal government to put these 
checks and balances in place because of fraud before the pandemic, yet they didn't do that. Tell us about what, tell us what you're working on today. Yeah, so that so the, uh, a lot of this came. There's several uh, investigators uh, general uh, that are looking into this, but one of them, the Comptroller General of the United States, Gene Dodaro, uh, he testified essentially that um, when lawmakers passed the Fraud Reduction and Data Analytics Act in 2016, um, that required agencies to implement a lot of these fraud prevention e- efforts um, that the uh, GAO's office had said you need to do. But those things just never happened. He said agencies were slow to implement the legislation and were not prepared um, to, to distribute the aid. But but it's not as if they didn't have a chance or that they, you know, yes, everybody who got up and testified said, yes, this money needed to get out quickly. But they all said um, it needed to get out quickly and correctly. And the, the, the preparations just were not in place for that. So. You can blame, um, and, and you know, the Democrats want to blame the Republicans and the Republicans want to blame, blame the Democrats. But this stuff, to me, is bipartisan failure. I mean, both sides should have been, hey, we have these rules. We passed this law. Let's implement this law. Uh, let's, you know, actually get things in, in place. And I understand the federal government's a huge bureaucracy. But to me, there's not a whole lot of excuse for this. Yeah, interesting and sad. At the same time, we'll continue, of course, following um, this investigation. Uh, into wasted taxpayer dollars. But let's move on, um, Brett. Also this week, uh, House Republicans on the Judiciary Committee launched uh, committee hearings on um, the border and fentanyl um, uh, crisis. Our correspondent in Texas, um, Bethany Blankley, <laughs> covered that um, um, for us. But uh, I know you've, you've been following it uh, somewhat, too. Well, what happened at the uh, Judiciary Committee this week? I mean, there was some powerful testimony from um, uh, uh, Brandon Dunn, who lost his son to fentanyl poisoning. Um, he he is, he has lost two sons um, to, to, to fentanyl overdoses less than 60 days apart. His son, Noah, was a sophomore in high school. He was um, murdered uh, by a drug dealer selling counterfeit Percocet pills. Um, uh, instead of Percocet, it was fentanyl. And... Uh, he didn't know how much fentanyl he was taking and died as a, died in an overdose. But the, the saddest part here is that this story is by, is by no means um, a one off. It's there, there's hundreds and thousands of deaths like this uh, um, each year. And, and the number is growing greatly because of fentanyl. Um, it was a, was a powerful drug certainly. Um, and it's replacing a lot of, uh, better known or, or users were able to better regulate their heroin intake, but with a more powerful opioid, they don't know the dosage limits and there's been a lot of overdoses as a result. And this is, and, and, and all, this is also not just a border uh, um, story. It's not just border States um, that need to worry about this. Fentanyl is everywhere. Uh, um, now we've written stories in, out of Washington state, out of Pennsylvania, um, out of pretty much every state in, uh, in the country, um, that fentanyl, fentanyl, illicit fentanyl has made it to their communities. And as, because of, as you pointed out, it's much, it's, it's much more powerful than, than other opioids that, uh, just, a, a, a an amount that weighs less than a mosquito. Um, we've reported this too, can kill. 
Um, and what we, what we know is that the precursors of fentanyl are made in China. They're shipped to the Mexican drug cartels who then put it into these other common opioids to make it look like a regular opioid pill. Uh, and many people, they just don't know what they're ingesting uh, if they take this um, because fentanyl has been um, uh, secretly put into the drug. Right. That, that's been, fentanyl has been a huge problem. Um, I think that for a long time it was manufactured in, manufactured in China. I think now it's being Mex- manufactured by Mexican cartels and brought directly in. And, and I mean, um, the cartels, uh, depending on how you look at it, are filling a need when that's America's a need for opioids. Um, and people continue to take opioids. There continues to be opioid addiction problems, and I don't see this going away soon. I think interdiction is a great strategy, but um, I, it's it's obviously not working as well as it could. I mean, the, the fentanyl is going to continue to pose a problem. Opioid deaths in general are going to continue to pose a problem. Um, and, and I don't think this is the last story that we're going to write about this uh, problem at all. Uh, oh, the, no, this, is, this isn't going away anytime soon. And, of course, Republicans... Um, blame the Biden administration and the the uh, the changes to border uh, policies that he's implemented uh, since he first t- took office. Of course, we know that illegal border crossing crossings have surged, skyrocketed um, since Pres- President Biden took office. So, border security is is a, a related issue to this fentanyl crisis. Yes, for sure. And how that border policy plays out could end up impacting um, a a huge number of things. But uh, certainly fentanyl overdose deaths could be one of them. All right. We will at the center square, of course, continue covering the border and fentanyl crisis um, story. Uh, Read all of our good work at thecentersquare.com. Right. Let's move on. We talk about taxes a lot at the center square. That's uh, one of our key portion of our mission. Uh, Let's talk about I don't know, something that could be called a a secret tax or a backdoor um, tax. And that's how that's all the fines and fees, whether it be from traffic tickets, red light cameras, court costs, et cetera, that are assessed to Americans. Reason Foundation released a study this week um, that essentially um, uh, ranked the states and how how much they assess fines and fees against their residents. What can you tell us here? Well, I mean, this is just an amazing story. Um, so essentially, local governments across the country pocketed about $9 billion in fines and fees in 2020. Um, but the states that were leading the way and sort of nickel and diming the residents the most were New York, Illinois, Texas, and Georgia. All were paying out more than $35 each on average per capita. So, um, I mean, that's just like every time you turn around, you're paying an extra tax fine fee to the to the state to, to state or local government and this is a huge amount of money i mean nine billion dollars um it's it's you know when you're hit up for ten dollars or thirty five dollars or a hundred dollar parking ticket or a traffic ticket um you know that one time expense doesn't seem so much but when you look at it and and how it's essentially become a different form of taxation um and you see some local governments who are basing a huge percentage of their revenue on ta- on uh, citations or or ticket revenue. It becomes a, it becomes something else entirely. It becomes taxation. Right. You and I are both based both based in Illinois in the suburbs of Chicago, and a, a trend starting I don't know ten twelve. 
maybe a little bit more than that years ago, were these red light cameras that local municipalities, mayors, police chiefs, etc., said were all about safety. We want people to slow down and not run through red lights. But I think you and I, I, I assume you agree with me, but I don't know this for sure. It's not about safety. It's about it's a money grab by these local municipalities. Uh, yes. And there's been a lot of great research that's been done around this. I mean, a lot of them um, in a town that you and I both know, um, there, there is a red light camera um, and that most of the, the red light violations at this particular uh, intersection are not uh, people running the red light, but rather people failing to make a full, complete stop before making a uh, right turn. Um, so. That's certainly not the most dangerous thing that you can do at an intersection. Yes, you should come to a full and complete stop. But a lot of these really were set up to get ticket revenue. Um, in the in Illinois, we've seen these cameras uh, essentially grew like vines throughout the suburbs in the city. And now they've been slowly taken down as people get more and more upset that, hey, they're not, A, doing what they said they, you said they were going to do. They're not making our roads safer. And we're getting ticketed every time uh, for these minor infractions, and it's adding up to millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I think this hits those who don't make a lot of money the hardest because then they have, if they can't pay, they have to go to court, or then they continue driving because they have to get to their job, and then they get a citation for driving without a license or driving, you know, uh, with some other vi- uh, some other moving violation. And it sort of adds up and adds up and adds up. And here we've got nine billion dollars. Wow. Craziness. Government needs its money and they'll take it any way they can get it, I guess. <clears throat> Let's move on, though, Brett. Um, you wrote another story this week um, about two Republican uh, congressmen who filed legislation that would cap the pay of diversity, equity and inclusion employees at the Department of Defense. Tell us about this story. This one, in my view, this is my opinion here, Dan, but I think this is somewhat clever but misguided. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, so, uh, two Republican congressmen, they filed legislation that would limit pay for diversity, equity, inclusion employees at the department of fence. And they would limit it to a specific amount to that that is paid to frontline soldiers, which is about $31,000 per year. Um, that's the, the rank there is E5 for, for people who know a lot about, uh, defense or military ranks. Um, but so they would limit those roles to $31,000 a year. I think that's that's certainly an interesting argument, and they make you know say uh, you know if if you're working on this device or what in some cases can be a divisive ideology, you shouldn't be paid more than than the soldiers who are protecting our countries. And I get that, but I don't know that that actually works. I don't know that one job is equatable to the other. Um, being a frontline soldier requires a s- different skill set, I'm sure, than trying to make an organization more diverse. Now, whether you think our, our Department of Defense needs to be more diverse, I guess, is a different topic. Um, and I'm sure that you could make the case that it does need to be more diverse. But whether this is the way to go about it, I'm not sure. What did you think about this one, Dan? Well, I guess the, the first thing that kind of surprised me about this one is that we pay our frontline soldiers just $31,000 a year. Um, Casey Harper last year, you know, when, when inflation was surging and, you know, the cost of groceries and everything else um, uh, had surged, uh, wrote a story about the, the Department of Defense actually recommending that its frontline soldiers get on food stamps because the, what we pay them um, $31,000 a year, uh, uh, apparently it wasn't good enough to support themselves and their families. So 
that's sort of a, a, a secondary point, but that is shocking. And of course, at the center square, we, we cover the news with a taxpayer sensibility. How does, how does government spending affect taxpayers? But I would certainly argue in this case, our frontline shoulders, soldiers should make more than $31,000 a year. Now to take that further, um, to the, this diversity, equity, inclusion employees, you know, yes, it, it does take a different skill set. But sh- <laughs> should they be paid more than our frontline soldiers? I, I don't know. I, I, at least it's starting a conversation, um, I guess. I agree with you. It's, and it's an interesting conversation to have. How, how do we value um, – how do we determine pay for government workers? Um, you know, and a lot of times, um, especially in the private sector, uh, pay tends to be uh, – Depend on like, how many employees you're responsible for or what size your budget that you're responsible for or your duties or responsibilities. We know that that's not always the case in uh, public sector pay, but th- I certainly think that there's some in- interesting conversations to be had around this. And I think that we'll continue to see more of them. I doubt this bill is going to pass. Um, uh, and I think it's also important to remember that, uh, the Department of Defense has a $773 billion budget. Um, so um, there's a lot going on within that department. Um, I don't think that this bill would end up saving, uh, one, I don't think it's going to pass. Two, I don't think it would end up saving taxpayers a ton of money. Um, but the, I think it does raise some good questions about how we value um, the employees that we hire and, 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 and how we decide on pay for, for different jobs. Brett, we just have about one minute or so left. So quickly, want to talk about uh, one final story, and that's um, two members of Congress representing the state of Washington have filed a bill um, that would essentially bar members of the uh, China Chinese Communist Party, including businesses, um, from buying uh, agricultural land in the U.S. That's been a, a, a national security concern for a number of years now. What can you tell us here? Well, so the two Republican lawmakers, um, uh, U.S. reps from Washington, Kathy McMorris Dan, and Dan Newhouse, they've introduced uh, the prohibition of agricultural land for the People's Republic of China. So this would essentially uh, keep the Chinese Communist Party from owning American agricultural real estate. Um, they they specifically cite issues with um uh, companies buying up land in Washington. I know that you and I have seen it here in Illinois and other agricultural areas as well. Um, and and there, I think that there's definitely a conversation to be had here too about national security and what we want, um, how we want to protect the, our agricultural land, which um, it, it can be very valuable. Story that will continue, also continue to follow at the center square. But uh, Brett, thank you for joining me again this week. That's all the time we have. A reminder to our listeners, you can find all of the Center Squares podcasts at americastalking.com. Take a look. Please subscribe. There is no cost. This has been the America in Focus podcast. For Brett Rowland, I'm Dan McCaleb. We'll talk to you next week.